Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an update from Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon on election security, big cats in sandstone, and U of M AD Mark Coyle on the remarkable season in gopher softball. But first... The legislative session just ended as being touted by top lawmakers as one that brought the state budget across the finish line with only a short wrap-up special session. Despite Minnesota being the only state in the nation with divided government, i.e. control of the House and Senate split between Democrats and Republicans. But claims of bipartisan cooperation aside, there could be storm clouds on the horizon. Bill Werner has more. Yes, it is May and we're here to sign a budget into law. So, uh, I know. Small wonders, small wonders. Governor Tim Walz says this week he signed the 20-plus billion-dollar public school funding bill surrounded by preschoolers at an elementary school in St. Paul. This is really something special. We proved to the rest of the country that we could come together as one of the nation's few divided governments, and we could come together first and foremost and put Minnesota's values first. Carleton College's Stephen Shear affirms that the temperament of the top three negotiators, the governor, Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka and Democratic House Speaker Melissa Hortman was to try to get an agreement instead of vilifying the opposition. But Scheer argues the next legislative session in 2020, not a budget session, could be a different matter altogether. When you look at the non-budget items, there are big differences between the House and Senate. Private school scholarships, conversion therapy, uh, an equal rights bill for the state, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, issue areas where Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate fundamentally disagree. And I think a lot of these social issues uh, are going to be very hard to reconcile between the two chambers. So I actually expect the next session to be a pretty conflictual one. Well, that's a very interesting observation because more and more we hear generally the the even-numbered years have been called bonding sessions Mm -hmm. around here, right, for decades and decades. And now we're hearing the term more because the question of when the bonding bill is done is somewhat blurring now, right? Yes. Um, And we're hearing more and more, well, the second uh, year of the biennium, that session is the policy session. Yes. And, And I think that's telling, isn't it, about how people are thinking about this, even though policy is always come into it, obviously, in, in the off years, as it were, in other words, the, the even-numbered years. But uh, do, do, you, do you see it more aligning that way in the future? Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's, it's aligning that way because when you look beyond the strict uh, tax and spending items in the agreement, there are a whole bunch of uh, democratic legislative initiatives of a policy sort from the House that did not get passed into law, and a bunch of Republican policy initiatives from the Senate that did not get passed into law. So you've got all these things sort of uh, waiting for uh, the next session, which will be a policy session, but I've already just described how it's going to be a session of big partisan conflict over policy. And we're not up against the same kind of a deadline in the sense that if they don't agree by the end of the fiscal year that state government partially shuts down or fully shuts down, right? So therefore, presumably, there might be a bit more holding out for 
um, for positions are a bit more deadlock? Is that yeah? Well, I think you can expect deadlock on a variety of matters: uh, equal rights, probably conversion therapy, abortion restrictions, uh, private school scholarships. Those are just a few where I think deadlock is almost certain to occur. Yeah. You know, the other thing, Bill, is um, um, how do you? both get a bonding bill, which will require Republican votes in both right. the House yeah. and the Senate, that's right. uh, along with all these policy disputes. You know? Yeah, that's how, right. How, how does all that get worked out in the blender? You know? Yeah, and particularly if transportation comes into it, as it, oh, as it, as it yeah. could well. Yeah. yeah, well, as as you know, Kelleher has said it's a four-year process. Professor Shear is talking about comments made by MnDOT Commissioner Margaret Anderson Kelleher in the context of the push by her boss, Governor Walls, for a gas tax increase. Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz also sees problems the next time lawmakers come back to St. Paul because he says much of the budget negotiations this past session occurred in the dark with very little transparency and very few people involved in the negotiations. That lack of transparency, that lack of openness, really, I think, was damaging to the process. Um, what I have found interesting is both Kurt Doubt, the minority leader in the House, and Tom Bach, the minority leader in the, uh, the Senate, um, equally are complaining about the process. And what we saw happen, what, is that if you were not in the majority chamber, uh, not majority party in, in the chamber, you were pretty much excluded from, from dialogue. And if you weren't part of the small leadership, you were excluded. Um, this was not a good um, way to do things from an open government, from sort of a, a, a when process matters type of approach. Does this become a situation of where chickens might come home to roost on this later on, you know, next session or the session after that, Professor? I think so. It doesn't set a good, it doesn't set a good um, um, precedent. And think about uh, on one level here is that, in order to pass a bonding bill in the state of Minnesota, you need to get a 60% vote in each, each of the houses here, which requires that you're going to have to what, reach across the aisles to be able to do something like that. And the process that we saw this legislative session where the minority party was essentially excluded from any kind of discussion doesn't bode well in terms of building the coalitions you need to get to that 60% in either the House or the Senate. And I suppose then if you have another flipping of control in either one or the other chamber, then you have disgruntled people on the other side and you have other people trying to perhaps settle old scores and you have all sorts of problems. No, I think you're absolutely correct. It leaves lots of people feeling like they were marginalized during this legislative session, um, as opposed to it being an inclusive session, and therefore, um, I think I think it doesn't set us up well for next year. Hamlin University professor David Schultz, Scott, thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return in a minute.
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The state legislature in its special session finally approved receiving $6.6 million in federal funding to help improve election security statewide. The money had been sitting there since the last legislative session waiting for approval. I spoke with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon about what it means to have access to the money and how it will be used to help keep our voting system safe real victory for the voters of Minnesota and for our election system. It was a long time in coming. This was a year-long struggle to get these funds. Minnesota had been the last state in the country to get them, but I'm thankful that we did get those funds and the authorization to use them. We had a report on the table of legislators last November about the ways in which we and stakeholders throughout the state wanted to spend the money, and we're going to do that. We're going to be faithful to that, and we're going to get going on the fixes that need doing right now so that we can make the 2020 election as secure as it can possibly be. And with regard to that, I was hoping you could maybe tell me and refresh our listeners' memories on what some of the key priorities are and how that funding is going to be used. Yeah, absolutely. Any member of the public, by the way, uh, your listeners included, can find details about that on our website, which is mnvotes.org, mnvotes.org. But in sum, um, we focus, uh, let me highlight a couple of them. One is we will be taking on what's called a cyber navigator. This will be a person who will assist counties and local governments in their own election cybersecurity. Critically important because we are only strong as strong as our weakest link system-wide. That includes our office, that includes counties and cities and local governments of all kinds who do elections. So we've got to have somebody who can help uh, and make sure that everyone's on the same page. Another thing that we're going to do uh, immediately is to modernize and secure the main database that our office runs that is sort of the spine of the system statewide. It's critically important because the system is getting old. It's also important because in other states that did suffer a breach in the 2016 election, that is what suffered the breach. It was that big database that all states have. So we got to get going with that. That is a long-term project. And as with many of these projects, you can't just flip on a switch. These are long-term efforts, and they take a lot of people a lot, a lot of time. And so we got get got to get going on that right away. Is there anything that's going to be very noticeable to Minnesota voters that's going to change as a result of getting this funding? I hope not. The whole idea is to make it as seamless as possible. So, for example, when we're redoing and recoding and resecuring this main state database, it won't be like flipping on a switch. It'll be done piece by piece over time. 
And so the typical voter hopefully won't feel any change whatsoever. Uh, that's the whole idea, to make it as seamless as possible. People who run elections at the county and city level, they might have to adapt a little bit as these modules, as they're called, uh, go on bit by bit, module by module. Uh, but for the typical voter, we hope it will be seamless and the voter won't even know that these things are going on. And Mr. Secretary, in the meantime, as these things are taking place, and uh, as you say, it's not like flipping a switch, um, what do you do to make sure that our election systems are secure? Um, What kinds of things do you do to try to prevent uh, bad actors from getting into our election systems? And early on now, say, for uh, the upcoming 2020 election? I think the name of the game is constant communications with our partners uh, up, down, and sideways. So, for example, um, we are in close contact, and I will be throughout the summer, uh, with the intelligence community in Washington, D.C., both in Washington and in meetings and conversations elsewhere. So that's one. Another one is to be in close contact with our partners in Minnesota, the counties, the cities, the townships who also administer elections. This is a team effort putting on an election. It's not our office alone. It's not a county alone. It's all of us in this together. So we've got to be talking and we've got to be sharing information. And when we get intelligence information that we can actually act on from the federal government, we've got to, in a judicious way, share that or at least share the action items uh, with our partners who do elections. That is critically important all through the 2020 election cycle. I know that getting this started as quickly as possible is the goal here. So uh, exactly how soon after the governor signs this does uh, does the money start being put to use? Uh, as soon as humanly possible is the answer. We're evaluating right now uh, how quickly we can get people on board to do some of these tasks. Um, your listeners should know that in anticipation that we would get at least some of the money, hopefully all, and we did get all, we already put in motion some of the hiring processes weeks ago so that we'd be ready on this day so that we're not starting from square one. So we think we're quite near the point where we're going to be able to actually staff up and hire the people to do this very delicate, very complex, long-range work. Uh, Very good, Mr. Secretary. Any other significant information that you care to add this morning? Just that the election is coming up more quickly than your listeners might uh, might know. Uh, the absentee ballot period for the 2020 presidential nominating primary will be sometime in the third week of January. So I think it's January 17th. So January 17th is when we'll start voting in the 2020 election in Minnesota. Thank you to my guest, Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Some might be surprised to learn, but Minnesota is home to a special haven for big cats. Reporter J.W. Cox has the details. Rescued from captivity and private ownership, lions, tigers, and more are rehabilitated at the Wildcat Sanctuary in Sandstone, Minnesota. Director and founder Tammy Thies says they're proud of the two decades of good that they've done for cats from all over the country and globe. We're founded in 1999, and really our mission is to provide a natural sanctuary to wild cats in need. Um, and it's crazy because I think people don't realize how many people get exotic animals as pets and they get in over their heads. And that's really why we started, is to take 
these animals out of substandard conditions and also decrease the public safety risk from people that were owning tigers, lions, bobcats, servals. <laughs> it's, um, it's an interesting industry, and we are now at uh, capacity almost, and we have got 113 residents here. And the other interesting thing, when I first see Wildcat Sanctuary, it's in Minnesota, I think, oh, that'd be great. We can go take a look at, at these animals that are that are being rehabilitated and they're being cared for in the best possible way for animals that aren't out in the wild. That, that would be cool to see. But that's not something that you guys offer because that's also a part of what your mission is. We really try to give a quality of life to the animals here. We're a safe haven for the wild at heart. We're not open for public tours, but we do accept volunteers to help with construction, in-kind services. There are sanctuaries that are open to the public for educational opportunities, um, but we also take in some of the worst cases behaviorally, cats that have been chained down for photo opportunities, cats that have been declawed, defanged, kept in dark basements, and there is a lot of rehabilitation to many of the animals we take in. So we really provide a sanctuary for the animals, but we're pretty much a humane society for big cats. What's the process of, of that look like on a day-to-day -day basis for you and, and the people that work there full-time and your volunteers that come in? What does it look like to care for these cats who, who not only are vastly different in, in variety, but also vastly different in maybe their needs? When we rescue big cats, uh, we learn something new each time because there's no two scenarios the same way. There's a lot of commonalities. Uh, but we will actually go pick up the animal. We go and do the transportation. We have an on-site hospital. Privately owned big cats are often um, defanged and declawed on all four feet. It's a crippling process that causes a lot of arthritis. So we need to treat any medical needs or emergencies right away. Then we move on to the behavioral modification program, and that might be they just need time away um, in a big open space to kind of just discover themselves as now as a truly a wild animal. Some have never been outdoors. They've been kept in basement kennels. Some have been outdoors but in really small spaces, so they're intimidated by open spaces. Some have never seen another animal like their kind, so seeing another tiger for the first time um, can either make them very happy or very intimidated. So each rehabilitation is really individualized to their background and their needs. You're at the back end a lot of trying to rehabilitate these animals. How do you hope that, that the fight against these animals ever being put in that situation in the first place kind of comes about, and what part do you hope you can play? Really our motto is keep the wild in your heart, not your home. So we have a three-pronged approach. Rescue is one of them, but educating the general public to adopt an appropriate pet is really big. A lot of times the idea of owning an exotic animal is much more cool than the reality of it. <laughs> and then also we work with uh, legislators to pass laws that make it illegal for the general population to go buy a tiger or lion as a pet. So our goal is really to put ourselves out of business one day. We don't see that in the near future, but we do see headway being made. Um, you know, the same thing is happening with monkeys and bears and wolves. It's not just the big cats, but that's our focus. And we really want the world to be more compassionate to animals in general. And when you put a tiger in a teeny cage, you declaw it, you defang it, you're taking everything away that makes it this tiger that we're supposed to 
love and adore. From reading some of the stories, obviously it seems like some of these cats that you're rescuing are coming from different places all, all around the country, and that would seem to signal to me that, well, either A, some places it's easier to skirt the law, or B, there's other places where the laws aren't in place that need to be there for the protection of these animals. Where does Minnesota stand in that pecking order if you were going to give the state a grade as far as what protections are put out there in the law for not having these types of exotic pets? In Minnesota, if you did a one to five scale, we are probably at a three. We prohibit the ownership of exotic uh, big cats except with a permit, but we do have some weak areas when it comes to native species like bobcats, cougars, lynx, bear, things like that. Um, But at least we have something on the books, and we do know that we have law enforcement enforcing those laws. So we've seen a big decrease in the number of animals in Minnesota being kept in substandard conditions since that law went into effect. Wisconsin, our neighbor, has no laws on the book, and so we're working on that state. Uh, It'd be nice to get a federal bill. One is being introduced right now. Um, It's been introduced several times, and we're still working towards it, but if we have to go state by state, we'll do that as well. Where does the funding come from? Is, is this supported by, by anything consistently, or is it all donation-based? This is all donation-based. We receive no government funding, even though we do support the government on seizures. Um, we work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, USDA, local sheriffs, local animal control, but um, our work is done because generous people want to see these animals see some compassion. Thank you for that report, J.W. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. (sighs) We want to hire you. You're, You're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Golden Gopher softball team caught the attention of the region with its first ever appearance in the Women's College World Series this week in Oklahoma City. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm was with the team and sat down with U of M Athletic Director Mark Coyle to talk about all of the excitement. Well, Mark, as we uh, record this, it's the morning of the first game in Oklahoma City. Uh, Many of our listeners uh, will likely be listening to this after the outcome of that game and maybe even a couple of games, but we're sitting in the hotel lobby Regardless of the outcomes of those games, obviously we're hoping when people listen, there's a couple of victories there. This has been quite a story, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, Mike, it's, uh, you know, we talked at the send-off the other day at Athletes Village. It's, it's a great example in life. And what I mean by that is, you know, two years ago we went through a coaching transition. Uh, we brought Coach Traskell in here and, and we talked to the team about you can respond, you know, two ways. You can either fall down and never be heard from again, or you can step up and try to take this to the next level. And I give, uh, I give our student-athletes a lot of credit. I give uh, Coach Trask a lot of credit. Obviously, they've stood up. Uh, we're here at the College World Series and look forward to, uh, to a great weekend of softball down here. 
You know, I think that's maybe part of the underrated part of this story is it was a, it, the program clearly was in good shape. It was the number one team in the country when Jamie uh, or when Jessica Allister decided to leave. But that's not an easy spot to step into, and not necessarily even an easy hire for you to make. Kind of walk us back to that point um, when you lose. Oftentimes, when you're replacing somebody, oh, it's a rebuilding job, and you're going to have some time. And this was a little different situation. Yeah, it, it was unique, and, and I was very fortunate when I was at Boise State. Uh, you know, I had to do my first football coaching search with Chris Peterson when, when Chris Peterson, a highly successful coach, uh, went to Washington. And it was a very similar situation. Uh, coach Alster had done a wonderful job here. We were the number one team in the country. Uh, had a disappointing seat in the NCAA tournament that year, if you remember. And, and, and Coach Alster had a chance to return to her alma mater. She handled everything the right way and, and really appreciative of everything she did. And, and I can tell you, when, when we put together our search committee uh, to hire our softball coach, you know, one of the very first questions we asked our candidates were, you know, you're replacing a legend, and, and how do you embrace that? And uh, and we felt like Jamie uh, had the right answer. She was very calm, collective. You've been around her. She's kind of very even-tempered in how she runs the program and, and how she responds to things. And uh, and again, I think that experience at Boise State taught me a lot and really helped me with this search uh, as we put this together with our search committee. What did you like about Jamie at that time that made her the right candidate for this job? And as it's turned out, it's been an awfully, obviously the right choice. Well, you know, a couple things. First off, you know, as soon as Coach Alster announced that she was going to Stanford, uh, I sat down with John Anderson, our baseball coach, and I asked Coach Anderson, what do we need here? And, and Coach Anderson made it very clear. Uh, he said, you need somebody who can coach inside. You know, when you play up north in Minnesota, you're going to have a lot of practices inside, and, and you need to find somebody who can coach inside. And so we paid attention to that. Um, I had a chance to meet Jamie a couple years ago when I was at Boise State. Uh, we talked to her about our head job at Boise State for softball. Um, I talked to her when I was at Syracuse uh, and kept in contact with her for a few years um, and what I looked at what she did at North Dakota State being a part of that very successful program and then she went to Iowa State they had a very successful season I think they took two out of three against Texas towards the end of the season uh, so uh, the people I talked to in the softball world all spoke very highly of her and said she was very capable of, of taking this program to the next level and she's done just that. The last four weeks have been pretty remarkable. The last uh, home regular season series was uh, Northwestern. It was an attendance record for that. Then uh, the Big Ten tournament uh, in Indiana where the Gophers made the championship game. And then the regionals uh, where you knock off Georgia twice to, uh, to get to the super regionals where you knock off LSU twice, two SEC powerhouses. What's the last month been like from a softball perspective on campus that I would guess that it's a pretty, uh, pretty fun thing? Yeah, well, we've got great, great softball fans. As you know, our season tickets are sold out, and we have great attendance in that. Northwestern series kind of dialed up the attention a little bit. If you recall, they were undefeated when they came into our place. Uh, the game on Saturday was on uh, ESPN, national TV, had great exposure, uh, and we took two out of three from them, and then the great ex uh, appearance down in uh, Indianapolis at the Big Ten tournament. And then to come back with the uh, regional, super regional, as you know, those people in the SEC, they're tough dudes, and, and you got to win to beat those people. They, they don't lay down, and we did great against Georgia, great against LSU and now we have a great opportunity in front of us here at Omaha. We're, we're the final eight. It's a great opportunity. We look forward to competing against some really good teams. Yeah, it's the first uh, ever appearance in the College World Series sanctioned by the NCAA for uh, the Golden Gophers. Um, and and as, as you get the the publicity and there's media members down here, TV stations covering it, columnists are in town. Um, what does that mean just generally for the athletic department when uh, a program that isn't always necessarily front page news becomes front page news? 
Well, you know, we, we always talk, one of the great things about Minnesota is we are a very successful broad-based program. You know, and right now, if you look at the Director's Cup, which measures the success of all programs, we're ranked sixth in the country. Uh, and it's awesome that our softball student-athletes are getting this well-deserved attention. You know, we always use the analogy, when a, when a softball student-athlete sprains her ankle, it hurts just as bad as when the starting point guard on the men's basketball team sprains his ankle. And I would guess you're one of those that also shares the message that if it's good for the athletic department, it's good for the university in general. That's kind of a, a gateway for some people. This is, uh, for some, might be uh, uh, what they know of the University of Minnesota in general as an institution even. Yeah, I mean, if, again, if you, you talked earlier about the last month of our season, think about how many times we've been on national TV with our softball program. And, and Mike, those are two-hour commercials for your institution. And when you see uh, our student-athletes competing at a high level, having fun, doing it the right way, it's a great marketing tool for the institution. And there's no doubt we're thankful for our Board of Regents. We're thankful for President Kaler and the support we get from our administration uh, to fund programs that can compete at a high level. Well, Mark, a great job. Let's uh, see if we can't get a few W's here in Oklahoma City. Thank you so much. Thanks so much and go Gophers. That's Gopher AD Mark Coyle along with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.